podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. We're going to be turning in our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to go ahead and thumb that direction, I'm telling you now because it might take you a little while to find it. It's Nehemiah chapter 8 is what I'm going to be speaking from. And you may notice that thus far this year, we've preached predominantly from the Old Testament And that is on purpose, you know, and part of our pastoral discussions and our our discussions around preaching, we just recognize that we we have not spent as much time in the Old Testament. And uh, that's not necessarily been by design. It's been more or less by default because the New Testament's just riveting. It is. And it's easier to preach generally. But some of the benefits of preaching from the Old Testament are, well, for one, it's written over such a long span of time. The New Testament was most likely all written within a maximum of 150 years. So it's from a very narrow time period, whereas the Old Testament is written over hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's a very urgent tone in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, we get a much more patient tone. And there often will be verses like, and 40 years later, and a generation later, or, and 70 years later. And I think that when we read only from the New Testament, we miss out on a lot of what it's really like to follow God over the long haul and to be faithful to following God over 50, 60, 70 plus years. And uh, so there are are definitive values, obviously. The whole is scripture, and we believe that it is all the word of God, but we are making a, a concerted effort to preach from the Old Testament and to try and help us to find the gospel in the Old Testament. Exegeting scripture is not preaching. Preaching is gospel proclamation. If it, if it doesn't end in gospel or culminate in gospel proclamation, then we've essentially just had a Bible study, which there's nothing wrong with that. But the entire word of God is scripture. And we believe that the entire word of God is gospel to us. It is God's gift to his people. And we're going to talk about that this morning because I'm, I'm preaching from a passage on preaching and reading scripture. So, yes. The irony is not lost on me. Um, Also, last point here. So you guys know that we're in our second trimester, technically, because we have three semesters a year for our Antioch School of Formation. And we intend for our next session, which will be, we're going to take March off when Pastor Jade and the Pixlers class finishes up at the end of February. And we're going to take March off. And then April and May, we intend, currently the schedule is to teach a class on reading scripture. So if you've got questions popping into your mind today, let me just let me put that before you that maybe, maybe that's the prompting of the Spirit. I don't know. Or maybe it's just your curiosity, but both are good reasons to take the class. So uh, we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 8 here in just a minute, but I, I do want to set it up. So the last couple of weeks, Pastor Jada spoke from Isaiah, and particularly the passages where he's been speaking from 
uh, have been looking forward in time to this moment that we're going to read from, even though in your Bible, they're reversed, where Nehemiah comes first in your Bible, but the Bible is not chronological, okay? So in history, historically, this is after the exile. And so the people of Israel have been exiled for decades, and they have just returned to Jerusalem. So you probably remember the popular Nehemiah story about Nehemiah hearing and then appealing to the governor or the ruler and saying, I must go. And he gives them resources and commissions him to go back and to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem, which has been decimated. And so here we are, uh, we're, we're at kind of the end of the book of Nehemiah and the wall is completed and they're working to restore the temple, okay? So there's a, a lot of chronological mystery in the books, the historical books of the Old Testament. But what we are sure of is at this point, the wall is done and the people are essentially, they're kind of exhaling because they just finished building the protective wall around the city of Jerusalem. And now they're, they're working to restore the temple. And then we have this passage in the book of Nehemiah chapter eight. I'm gonna read the last verse from chapter seven. And then we're gonna read a lengthy passage and then I'm gonna come back and unpack it, okay? So the last verse of chapter seven says, when the seventh month came, seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women. Catch the inclusive language here, which is very unique, especially for this time period. So, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively. This is every preacher's dream. From, from daybreak until noon, he stood with no microphone, right? Hundreds of thousands of people. So they, they have like, if you've ever been to uh, anywhere in an ancient city, they, they build these amphitheaters, like everything was built for acoustics and for these massive groups of people because they didn't have these wonderful, beautiful little speakers that we now have. So back to the text, moment of humor that I, I dwelt on much this week. What, what would this be like? Uh, so Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him on his right, you guys ready for this? Stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left, Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, this is my favorite, Hashbadana. <laughs> I've been a Christian since I was born and I never knew that that name existed. Zechariah and Meshulam. Uh, we got through the first of two verses. You know what? I contemplated skipping over them, uh, but I took the risk of fumbling in front of you because I do believe that there is something important about recognizing, well, now I'm, now I'm gonna get into preaching. I was gonna finish, but recognizing that for the gospel to be proclaimed, it, it wasn't just that God just like dropped the Bible into the earth, that it is, it's been a long journey 
of people listening and telling stories and transcribing and interpreting and collecting and gathering and studying and proclaiming and hearing and interpreting. It, it takes a village to receive and understand the Bible. Like sometimes we oversimplify the fact that we have hundreds of these and we have a dozen stores in our city that sell any variation of scripture that you want. But I read the names because I think it's important to realize there are actual human beings in the, in the process of this being preserved for us today to be able to do what they did in this story. So back to verse five here. So Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. Second time he's made that point. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, this is round two, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, okay, I've already preached that point, so I'm gonna skip to the end, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So there is this picture of Ezra is standing on a wooden platform and there's some to his left and some to his right, but then there are also some out among the people that are translating and interpreting and helping the people to understand. So there's assistance on the stage and there's also assistance out in the congregation of all of these Levites that, that are helping the people to understand and hear the word of God rightly. So they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And then verse nine, and this is where we're gonna spend the majority of our time. So that's all kind of setting this up. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said, this day is sacred to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And some of your Bibles might say, eat fat and drink wine. <laughs> and isn't it ironic? We just finished our 21 day fast, <laughs> which actually in a little bit, we're gonna talk about the correspondence between fasting and feasting, which there are strong biblical precedents for. Um, but I just, I enjoyed reading that here at the end of our fast. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's a popular verse, a song that we sang this morning. And then two more verses. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The word of the Lord. So there's a lot happening here and there's so many sermons that could be preached. And I wrestled with this a lot, more than most sermons uh, this week. And, and where I've, I, I've landed, I know, I think what I really wanna preach and emphasize, but I wanna give enough context for us all to understand some of the implications of what actually is happening here. So for one, what is so significant about this passage? Well, one, this is the first time that scripture has been read 
post-exile. And during the exile, we don't exactly know. We believe that that's where the origination of the synagogue was during the exile. But they're back in the city. And this is, for most of these people, probably their first time back in Jerusalem. Because they were in exile for 70 plus years. So either, for some of them, they have childhood memories... Or this is their first time and they've heard their parents and their grandparents talk about this place, but they've come back to Jerusalem and now this is, this is a shining moment where scripture is being read for the first time at the Watergate. And we're going to talk about the Watergate. Everyone who was born in the, the 60s or earlier has trepidation when they hear Watergate, but this is a different Watergate, okay? This is something altogether separate. So you can shove all the political thoughts out of your mind. But this really is a beautiful story, uh, and it is also the first time that Scripture explicitly tells us that Scripture was read, that the Torah or the law was read with interpretation. So you'll notice throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, there are passages that talk about the proclamation of the reading of the word. But there are very few instances that explicitly talk about the word being explained or translated or elaborated on. And this is really the origin of the sermon. The sermon is supposed to be the reading of the word with commentary. It's not supposed to be my thoughts for you, as much as what do I sense God saying through this book, and how can I help you understand through the study that I have done? So those are a couple of things just to help set this up. But what I also think is so fascinating is that they come without the prompting of Ezra, that the people gather, it says they gather, and they ask Ezra to read the word. And as I meditated on this, I thought, is it, it's not ironic, and it is interesting that the, the priest and the Levites are not quote-unquote leading in the sense that we often pawn the responsibility off onto pastors, that the job here of the priests seem to be to discern and nurture what God is already doing in the people, that the people are prompted, the people initiate. Obviously, we would believe that the Holy Spirit is prompting them. Okay, that's, we, we get that. But then they are prompting the scribes and the Levites and Ezra, ultimately, saying, we want you to come and read scripture and help us understand. So there is this pastoral and priestly role that is revealed where the, the nature before leading is to discern and to nurture and to cultivate space and environments for what God is already doing in your lives and what God is doing in this congregation. And to take this a step further, if we believe in the priesthood of all believers, then what is your job? That your job is to discern what the Lord is doing in the life of your neighbor. That your job as a priest means that you mediate for your neighbor with God, that you mediate with God, that you say, not mediation in the sense of exclusivity, like they can't get to God without you, but mediation in the sense of intercession and discernment and wisdom on their behalf. So when the Bible speaks of us being a priesthood of all believers, what it's really saying is there is an element of responsibility that you have for the people around you and that you have for the community that God has placed you in. And our job together is to discern that and cultivate space for that to be nurtured. So think about that next time you're in your life group. 
That there are seasons where, of course, we come to receive, we need to receive. But there are also seasons when you are placed in a specific group, in a specific body, or a specific context, and your purpose in being there is to discern what God is doing in the lives of the other people that are there. Come on, kindred. I like it. Nice. All right, next point here. So they gather at the water gate. So what's interesting about the water gate is that for one, the water gate, which they don't even exactly know where it is, but what they do know from references all throughout scripture is that the water gate was the greatest place of inclusivity. The water gate would be the place that they go to get water, right? And it's the place, the, the one of the primary places within the city where men, women, and children were all allowed and there, there would be no awkwardness or weirdness because in that culture, they had very strict guidelines for who was allowed where. But the Watergate was the place where everyone was always welcome. And I think that that matters, that that is a, that is a, a picture of the gospel, that, the, that Israel is back in their homeland. But what was the original promise to Israel? Not that God would love them more than everyone else, but the original promise to Abraham was that he would form through Abraham a people and call them unto himself for the purpose of blessing all of the other nations of the world. So there is this gospel picture that we start to see rounding out and taking shape here of inclusivity, that they are called to be Israel, but not for the sake of being elite. They're called to be Israel for the sake of blessing the other people and the other nations around them. So that is a little bit of the significance of the water gate here. So what is this passage really about? I think a number of things, but I'd like to say for the purposes of this message, that this passage is about how God uses scripture to shape us into who we are called to be. And I have three targets this morning. We're going to spend most of the rest of our time talking about the nature of scripture, how we engage with scripture, and how we, spawn, how we respond to God when he meets us in scripture. And so in this story, what is significant about the reading? Well, I've already given you a couple of things, but the third is that he, it says explicitly that it was read from the law. Well, obviously that's all they had at this point. They didn't have the rest of the Bible yet. But what do we know about the law? We know that the law is ultimately, among other things, the story of the deliverance of the people of God from the hands of Egypt and calling them out of oppression, liberating them and giving them the capital L law, the Ten Commandments, along with all the corresponding other laws in the book of Leviticus that you all read in your devotions this week, I'm sure. So we have to get, get in our heads the picture here that this is probably their first time back in Jerusalem, right, for most of the people here. And they're hearing the stories about their ancestors and it says explicitly that they responded initially with weeping and mourning. But what is curious is that it doesn't tell us why. And I think, and I read all kinds of commentaries and there is all kinds of scholarly speculation. But what I think is beautiful about that is that the Bible doesn't tell us, which means we don't necessarily need to know because there are a variety of things that could fit in there. So, so they hear this story, right? They're hearing the law being read for at least six hours. 
Imagine that you're hearing this story. You've just been released from captivity and you've returned to your homeland. And now you're hearing of the story of your ancestors and they're being released from captivity and they're wandering in the wilderness and hearing about all of the stories that we've read about, they're grumbling and complaining and they don't have water and they don't have food and God is, God is meeting their complaints and he's showing them that he is their provider. And this is one of the unique things is that they have one God when all the nations around them have all these other gods and, and the God Yahweh is trying to show them, I am, I am God your protector, I am God your provider, I am the God that you worship, like I am all that you need. And they're hearing this after being in exile, I can only imagine that there are all kinds of emotions that I, I don't think what he's reading from is just a list of rituals and laws. I think he's telling them the story of their history. And I think that that matters for them for a number of reasons, because one of the reasons we read scripture is that when we hear scripture, we are reminded of our history which also provides context for our present and our trajectory for our future. Let me say this a, a little clearer. They have gathered and they've just put the walls up in their city, right? But they're clearly lost in their cultural and spiritual identity. Like they're back in the land, but the land itself is not what it's ever been about. It's never been about the land. It's been about the God of the land. It's never been about the people of Israel. It's always been about the God of the people of Israel. So they're back in this place, this physical space, which especially at that time was sacred, but there's something missing. So they ask for the story to be told. They ask for scripture to be read because they no longer have common vision and common identity. They look to the past to find their bearings for the present, which will set the course for their future. And I think that this has massive implications for us, obviously. Uh, as you all know, if you've been in this church any length of time, you know that we are in a, in a continual tension, in a, in a wrestling match, where we want to pull as much healthy tradition as we possibly can, and we want to also be as attentive to the current activity and the current move of the Spirit as we possibly can. And unfortunately, those two things have been pit against each other, for so much of the church's history, but we are doing our best and constantly talking and constantly praying and constantly discerning how God might be using these things, these traditional things, to keep us on the course that he has for us as his people. Amen. Hearing scripture also places us in God's story and it reminds us that we are part of God's story and he's not just part of ours. And I think especially with American individualism and exceptionalism, it is so easy to sell the gospel and to hear the gospel as God died for you to make your life better so that you don't have to go through hard things and you get to go to heaven when you die. And that is not the gospel. It doesn't mean that that's not true. It just means that's not the gospel. The gospel is that there is a God who is goodness and love and mercy, and he created a world that fell, and God will not relent 
from pursuing that world and his creation, even to the extent of entering into it himself to redeem and to restore and to save. That is the gospel. And that God is here present and has invited us into this space this morning. So it reminds us that we are part of God's story and that he's not just a part of ours. He doesn't just get to be part of the priority list. God informs that we have a list at all, right, to our lives. So uh, let me keep moving on here. I mean, I've spent a little more time than I intended to spend. But reading scripture familiarizes us with the ways that God has worked and revealed himself to his people in the past. So one of the big mistakes that we make is we assume that everything in the Bible is a model for how we are to do things. And that is not necessarily the case. There are a lot of examples and things in scripture that we read that are unfaithful ways to follow God. And we believe that God speaks through those too. That's one of the beauties of what we believe the Bible to be inspired means that God can use stories of unfaithfulness and God can use stories that are evil to still speak and train us and form us and shape us in the image of Christ. So we read scripture and we read all of these stories of how Israel got it right and sometimes how they got it wrong and how God always met them in both places to continue his work in the earth. And that is a beautiful thing for us because I don't know about you, but I don't always get it right. And the Bible helps us. Some of these stories help us put context around our own mistakes. And when we fall, how do we respond? How do we sense the Lord having turned toward us in our shame, in our condemnation, in our conviction, in our hopelessness, in our celebration, in our, in our right doing? How do we sense that the Lord is working in us and through us and shining upon us for the sake of the world? Uh, okay, so I'm gonna jump jump down here um, to verse nine. I'd like to put that on the screen if we can. And I wanna read this and I wanna speak a little bit. Now we're gonna get into a little more of the, the preachy part of this, but I wanna speak to this do not weep or mourn. This is a day of celebration. So let's read it together. Or you don't, you don't have to read it. You can read it with your eyes. I'll read it with my mouth. Um, then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. I want to be very, very clear here. Uh, and I think scripture is clear so that I can be clear. Ezra is not condemning weeping and mourning in and of itself. We know from scripture, it, scripture is replete with mourning and weeping. I mean, there's a book called Lamentations, for goodness sake, right? And we see Jesus, the week of his death, weeping over the city. So there, there are times in our, and seasons, sometimes extended seasons, where weeping and mourning is the appropriate response. So, so I wanna just be clear that, that he's not saying there's no place for crying here. He's speaking to something, I think, a little bit deeper. And ironically, 
chapter nine, verse one says, so we're in chapter eight, the very next chapter, the first verse says, so they went into a time of fasting and mourning with sackcloth and ashes. So we know that he's not condemning mourning and weeping here, but he is speaking to something in their response that he discerns, remember there's this word again, this priestly and pastoral duty is to discern and to nurture and to cultivate that whatever it is that God is doing in them as they're hearing scripture is on the fringe of being something that it shouldn't be. So I wanna just talk about some possible responses to scripture and possible responses to God's words to us. Their mourning, right? Their mourning could have been gratitude. It could have been, Lord, we're hearing the stories from Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and we are so grateful that finally we are in the promised land. It could have been that. It could have also been conviction. It could have been healthy conviction that the spirit is moving on them and they're seeing the distance between who God has called them to be and who they currently are. It also could have been shame and pity and self, uh, self-condemnation, discouragement for those very same reasons, for seeing God, these are the promises that you've given us, but the reality of where we are and what you have promised, there there is a vast divide between these two things. Where are you? Like we're back in this place, but I'm I'm not feeling anything. I'm being, we're back in Jerusalem and it doesn't seem to have the luster of the holy city that it's supposed to have. It very well could have been that. It also could, could have been confusion and disappointment that God, seriously, like this is what we've waited for for two generations. We've waited to come back to this city that's decimated and that isn't nearly as beautiful as we've heard about. It also could have been, could have been apathy. It probably wasn't apathy because they were crying and they were mourning. But I think sometimes apathy is our response. We read things in scripture and they just don't touch us. And the part of what, we have here is that we don't exactly know why they're crying. They're mourning and they're weeping, but they kind of get a subtle rebuke. And I think ultimately after wrestling with this all week, that what's happened is that they are confronted with their insufficiency and the huge gap between where they are and where God has intended for them to be. And I think at the sight of the distance between those two things, they can't help but just be overcome with whether you call it conviction, call it shame, call it condemnation, call it discouragement, I don't know. But I think what Ezra wants them to see is that what they see in themselves as an enormous disappointment is an opportunity for God's great mercy to be shown on them. And the more we read the New Testament, we hear Paul say things like this, that he he's wrestling with the Lord, right? In 2 Corinthians 12, And he senses this response that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think Israel is having to learn to come to terms with they weren't chosen because they're better than everyone else. That we could even say they were chosen 
precisely because they're the perfect group of people for God to show his strength through their weaknesses. And that's humbling, right? So I think Ezra is wanting to prevent them from their focus being too much on their insufficiencies and the ways that they have come up short and the way that God's promises have not yet been fulfilled in their lives. And he's saying, guys, look, this is actually cause for celebration because you're so weak. Like, isn't that encouraging, church? (laughs) Antioch Church, because you are so weak, this is the perfect place for God to show up in this city, you know? But in the kingdom, there is a way in which we can find joy in that because we know that we are all weak, that there are none that are strong among us. Uh, I'd like to move on to verse 10 here. So he says, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. And I believe that this is where the gospel proclamation comes in, right? That Nehemiah has just, he's trying to not allow for their grief or their conviction or whatever we might call it, to lead them to a place of shame and hopelessness. So he points them to celebration. And it's easy, especially for us, now that we have the New Testament and we hear Paul say things like there is no life in the law. And we hear this, it's sometimes hard for us to hear the law and not associate it with it's done, it's away with, it was never really that good anyways. But all of scripture is God's word to us and in some way is God's life to us and for us. And I believe that the reading of scripture here ultimately points them to celebration because it is, they are coming to realize that God has called them for something that is far beyond them and that God is not done yet. And ultimately, I think this is the picture that is is being painted here. So we have this verse, verse 10, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink and send some to those who have nothing prepared. For this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In hearing this uh, sweet wine, or as it says here, sweet drink, I think that there are a number of word plays happening. One, that now we look back and we can see an allusion to the wedding of Cana, right? Where Jesus turns the water into not just wine, but the best wine. And that is a picture, I think, of what God is doing in their midst, that they're in the midst of this this city that seems like really lackluster, But where God is active and where God is present, it doesn't matter how broken and how desolate and how destroyed something is, God can bring sweet wine from even that. There is also this story uh, in Exodus chapter 15, you may remember this, where Israel is, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're thirsty, right? So of course they're complaining. This is their MO, this is what they do. And this is what we do. So before you laugh, this is what we do, right? And they say, God, we don't have any water and we just came to this spring and the water is bitter. So God tells Moses that there's a stick and Moses throws the stick into the water and it becomes sweet water. It sweetens the water. And this is yet another picture of the way that God works in our lives and in our circumstances. And I think that this is gospel to us, that no matter how bitter the situation is, no matter how broken 
your past or maybe your present are, that there is nothing, including a stick, that God cannot use to somehow bring sweetness and goodness and mercy. And I don't believe it's a coincidence that this is the water gate, that this is the place in the city where they're gathered and they're hearing scripture. This is the place that they draw water from. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell them, go and eat fat and drink sweet wine. And they respond by giving portions to those who are needy. And I think this is ultimately the sign of transformation. The sign of true repentance and true transformation at hearing the word of God is when we hear our eyes are much less on ourselves and they're much more on who God is and who the people around us are and what God is saying to us for them and what God has given to us for them. So he tells them essentially, go feast, right? They're expecting to mourn and to fast. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell them instead, feast. But it's not just a feast. This is the inaugural feast back in Jerusalem of the people of God. This is a a true celebration. And there is here a relationship between feasting and fasting. And we've just come off of a fast, right? But I I think what is clear here is that feasting is not just simple self-indulgence, that it's not just, yay, we're off the fast, but it is learning how to steward the gifts that for a season we chose to do without So that now when we are not doing without and when we have and when we eat and when we drink, we are now aware that these gifts are gifts from God. That that we did not make these things for ourselves. And when we fast properly, it sets us up to feast properly. And feasting is really the place where God's delight in us and his provision for us come together come together for the sake of the world as Israel is called to be the nation that blesses all the other nations of the world. They are told here, go and feast, but don't just self-indulge. Feast in such a way where you are giving to those around you that do not have need. And I think church, this is, this is a word to us, both a literal word and also a spiritual word, a metaphorical word. We've just come off of a fast, and it is tempting to just go eat and do all of the things that you refrained from for 21 days. And there's a sense in which I say, okay, bless that. But do it with fresh eyes. Do it in a way where you are now awakened to those who don't have those things available. And do it in such a way where you are awakened to the fact that those things that you can now indulge in are gifts from God to you for the sake of blessing the world. I'd like to ask the communion attendants to get ready as we get close to wrapping up here. Um, And uh, Joe, if you would come play, my friend. Yeah. Church, as we hear this very, very ancient and somewhat obscure text from Nehemiah, where there's just a lot of questions and a lot of things we don't know, I pray that you will hear the gospel and that the gospel would be to you that there are multiple appropriate responses to scripture. And whatever your response is to hearing the word of God, that God wants to meet you there, no matter how broken or dark or confused sometimes when we read things in scripture, and that God wants to meet you in those places and to 
to use that to transform you into the image of Christ. The goal of reading scripture is not to understand everything. The goal of reading scripture is to be transformed into the body of Christ that we are called to be. And this is a very clear picture of that happening, that Israel hears the scripture and they are immediately provoked. And then they are guided by spiritual authority. They are guided and nurtured into a place of giving So they turn to God and they're receiving conviction or condemnation or whatever they they sense that is coming. And Ezra says, no, I think what the word of the Lord is for you is to celebrate, but to celebrate in such a way that you bless everyone and everything that is around you and that you share every good gift with those who don't have. And that is a picture of what we come to do at the table, that we come to share in the gift of God, that the body and the blood of Christ are God's gift to us, that they are a picture of God's nourishment. They are a picture of provision, a picture of manna in the wilderness for us to sustain us by the living word, Jesus Christ. So I'd like to invite you to stand. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.